you know, I, I'm, I'm getting increasingly concerned about the, the concentration of power in terms of the ability to censor ideas and conversations online. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. This week, our guest is Liv Borry, who got her start studying astrophysics in England, became well-known as one of the world's most successful poker players, then transitioned into effective altruism and science communication. In this conversation, we dip our toes into Liv's background, game theory, and the mental frameworks and motivations that Liv uses to navigate reality. But the greater part of the discussion actually explores the ways in which social media is negatively influencing rational discourse and our ability to be rational actors. This felt especially relevant given that many of you listening to this podcast are now actively involved in Singularity University's online community, where one of our major foci is solving this very issue. In fact, the heart of the community is based on having an incredibly diverse range of thinkers coming together to discuss complex and difficult problems in nuanced ways so that we're all capable of finding novel solutions to the challenges that are confronting our species. As always, you can find out more about that community at su.org. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy as we welcome to the feedback loop, Liv Borey. My first question is, who is your favorite metal band? Oh, who is my favorite metal band? You see, asking me a question like this, where I have to narrow this down to one band is just very unfair. Um, well, the band that like was most informative on my music taste was Metallica, who I was just so obsessed with. You know, that was like right in the peak of my late teens when I first really got into music, into metal. Um, so I, I would say Metallica, but actually if I had like one band I could only ever listen to at the end of time, I think it would be Children of Bodom. Oh, interesting. The, nice. the, the melodic death metal, it just, it just speaks to my soul. I love the combination of melodic and death and in, in one genre of music. It's like, yeah, well, it's just like neoclassical, but with growly vocals. Uh, <laughs> and it's, they're just so talented. And sadly, the, the singer guitarist passed away recently. Um, but they were just, they're just true uh, sort of music, musical savants. Maybe we can use that to bridge into your background a little bit. So what was the Renaissance story of Liv moving from astrophysics and metal <laughs> to poker, altruism, and science communication? Could you take us on a little short journey of what that was like? Sure. So yeah, studied astrophysics at university, um, which was also while I was deep in my heavy metal phase. Um, kind of, you know, my original plan before university was to become a research scientist. But then I was so into metal and guitar, I wanted to become a rock star. And when I graduated, I needed to find a way to make some money. Um, and the somehow fell into playing game shows as a way of, of doing so. I've always been a very competitive person as well. I just like loved games, particularly video games. Um, so this, it was a kind of a natural transition. And it was on one of these game shows that uh, I learned to play poker. It was actually, a, they, they wanted five beginners for the show uh, and teach them how to play poker to see what personality type is best suited for the game. Um, not a very well controlled science experiment, but um, you know, a fun, a fun premise nonetheless. And so that that was the first time I ever played poker it was also my first time on TV, actually, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I was 21, just graduated, um, full of bravado. Uh, and I just completely fell in love with the game so much. It just like, it just ticked all the boxes of, of from, I think, my personality type at the time, because um, I was so competitive and I loved play like playing like a boy's game and beating them at it. Um, that was like my identity, I guess, at the time um, yeah, that I really wanted to do. And uh, so then turned professional a few years later, uh, did that for best part of a decade. 
Um, but then it was during that time, uh, sort of in 2014, uh, my my now uh, partner Igor and uh, and some of his friends, uh, we got interested in this concept of effective altruism, which is you know basically there's so many problems in the world. How do we figure out which ones to prioritize? You know, there's only limited resources that can be spent um, philanthropically. And so we started a, a sort of organization movement type thing within the poker community, getting poker players to uh, encourage them, them to donate a portion of their winnings to uh, only the most uh, provably cost-effective charities or, or research organizations, um, you know, basically getting the maximum bang for, for your buck. Um, when it comes to donating, um, which I think a lot of poker players appreciate because they are typically um, rationalists of, of that type. You know, they, they definitely care about return on investment. And um, I, in my opinion, philanthropy should really be no different. Uh, it, it's good to have the heart in your giving, in, in, you know, use your heart when it comes to uh, choosing where to donate to, but you need to use your head too. And so it was really about combining the head and the heart. Uh, and then, yeah, so then that sort of carried on and now I'm retired from poker um, and mostly, I don't really know what exactly I do at the moment. Um, I, I, give a, I give a lot of talks on sort of rationality and decision-making and sort of the life lessons from poker. Um, but really my passion lies in uh, making, explaining concepts, complex concepts through video um, and mostly working on that at the moment. Would you say that's the, the place that you're most passionate about right now? Like if you were me and you were about to ask you the question that you thought would bring out the most passionate response in you, what question would you ask yourself? What topic would you want to discuss? I mean, the thing that I actually spend the most, most of the time thinking about at the moment is just like this, the combative nature of social media and like why it feels like everyone's just gone a little bit insane lately. Mm -hmm. Um, and whether that's actually the case and it's whether you know whether social media is an accurate reflection of the average person or not maybe it is maybe it isn't um but it definitely feels like this there's an a, a more combative vibe going on than there was even a couple of years ago um so that's definitely something i i have a lot to i think about a lot uh and and just like yeah the the what what does the risk landscape look like for humanity over the coming few decades because it ain't great i don't think mm. yeah so. i just talked to toby ord from uh, the future of oh. humanity institute and he was telling me about his uh, one in six his prediction of one in six chance that we're gonna kill ourselves i i actually i mean i'm not at all saying that toby's prediction is i mean toby's prediction is far more accurate than mine would ever be but my intuition says it's even worse than that oh no yeah, I mean, my intuitions can definitely be wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, this is one instance where I hope that my intuition is just uh, being excessively risk averse and over worried, you know, worried over nothing. Um, but it doesn't feel like it. Let's let's play on that a little bit. Maybe you do a lot with the effective altruism, which is something that is big with our community because our big focus is like using technology to solve problems in the world, and that's obviously a very ambiguous nebulous nuanced task and it could probably benefit from a lot of rationale uh being injected into it you started i think your company because you thought there was some maybe irrational behavior in the effective altruism world um or maybe we were just going about it in a way that as you said wasn't as uh, focused on combining the head and the heart are there certain things that you would are you would like to see happen in that domain that you think could help us write this ship become less risk uh oriented well i mean obviously it depends on which which specific risk you know are we talking about the risk from nuclear war um that's that's something that's sort of a this complex game theoretic problem um where you need to in simultaneously get everyone to disarm you know the follow disarmament um there's actually a really cool idea uh, i heard about recently which is we need new we need more nuclear energy um we should be building nuclear power plants instead of turning them taking them offline and turning them into coal plants or you know replacing them with coal plants which is what's currently happening um and uh there's this there's this movement to 
turn the uranium that's currently sitting inside all these vast numbers of uh, nuclear weapons, of which there, you know, there, there's there's too many to then there's more than is needed to maintain, you know, the the Nash equilibrium of mutually assured destruction. Um, so we could repurpose some of that and actually put it into nuclear power, and that's two two uh, two birds of one stone. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to that, that's more of a game theoretic problem. Um, then you've got like the risks of potential synthetic biology, um, you know, whether it's intentional or accidental. Uh, and just in general, like there's, there's, there's some really incredible uh, biological uh, breakthroughs on the horizon. Um, but as with all these things, they're often dual purpose. You know, they can do incredible good, but they can also do incredible bad. So how do we um, find a way to navigate the, the pressures of progress versus the pressures of making, you know, of safety? Um, they don't always have to be a dichotomy. Um, and, and then, you know, more generally, how do we make, you know, a big part of our problems are that there's a big detachment between what the public thinks is the right thing to do and what actually is the right thing to do. And understandably, you know, le political leaders or business leaders are under immense pressure to satiate the public viewpoint. Um, but how can we do that if people are not, you know, it, it's, again, now this is the question, like, are people, leaning towards overly simplistic answers more than they used to you know has nuance died um if you hang out on social media it kind of feels like it um another friend mentioned sort of how we seem to be devolving into symbols mm. you know it was in in back in the good old days in the historical not the, not the good old days but like medieval times everything was about symbols because people were like people couldn't read um there was no printing press there were there was no way to sort of really convey nuanced information aside of just like this is a, you know, the Christian cross and that stood for something and generally a form of morality and good. Um, and, it, and it felt like maybe we were moving away from symbols as you know, more and more people became literate and we had better ways of communicating these complex ideas. But again, it kind of feels like we're going back into symbolism again, but just in the form of hashtags and uh, you know, wristbands and, and these, um, these social movements, which at their core are actually based on good ideas but in reality they get lumped sort of in with a sort of broader range of political movements which don't actually necessarily you know they, they often seem to come with a lot of baggage and um it, it's trying they're trying to simplify down a lot of real complexities into this like one symbol um and then people become overly attached and and like it's it's sort of like this uh this disneyland of like Anyone who believes in the symbol is good, and anyone who doesn't is bad. And uh, how do we how do we make nuance sexy again? I guess. Um, so does that answer the question? I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives us some avenues to take too, which is where do you think maybe science communication and game theory plays into solving these issues? Do you think that there's power in those two mediums to really address these, or or maybe not? There's certainly power in in like platforms, you know, long, longer form video. You know, YouTube is the base. It's the second most used uh, search engine uh, behind Google itself. Um, and the benefit of that is that there's actually a lot of. In, it's a very information informationally dense medium video. And on top of that, the videos can be quite long, so you can really get some high quality content on there, and and explain a far more complex concept better than you ever could in 280 characters on Twitter. Um, so. Yeah, there, there, there are ways to to sort of use the, the 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 different social media platforms to discuss complex concepts, but at the same time, the 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 landscape of the internet, you know, the new currency is attention, mm -hmm. um, attention and time, as opposed to you know before it like it was like physical real estate and and sort of goods and services now it's it's now getting eyes eyeballs on websites or on videos or on you know followers to your account as opposed to elsewhere and this this these like competitive dynamics are they drive these sort of race to the bottom type scenarios in terms of like you need to have your you know all these media companies whereas before they it was like a, maybe just the New York Times and the Washington Post and like a handful of like these big centralized uh, organizations, they're now 
competing against all these little startup media companies, which in some ways is great, but at the other time, you know, the, the downside of that is that it's now much more competitive. And so those who will be willing to take, follow more unscrupulous uh, strategies, you know, having heavily clickbaited, preloaded headlines um, to, 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 to get the angry, to get the angry uh, clicks um, will sort of drive this, this, this devolvement of complex nuanced discourse. So how do we compete against that? Yeah, what worries me is it seems like to some extent we're actually engaging in it on a peer to peer level too. Like I see a lot of people who aren't small media companies or big media companies, but who are just regular people and because they want their coaching business or, you know, anything that they're doing to succeed. I see a lot of exploitive language, a lot of the the cult mm -hmm. playbook moves. I've talked to people about this before, the love bombing and the certain things that you do when you want to start a cult. You see it in friends doing it to other friends. And that's where I get really worried is we're no that that's killing the grassroots uh, you know, side of things where I think a lot of the the revolutions, so to speak, that are necessary uh, would usually happen. Mm. Do you uh you you talk about thinking in probabilities a lot? Is that something that you think might benefit the, the situation? Is getting people away from these black and white approaches? I mean, yeah, I I hope so. I mean, it certainly helped for me. Um, I before I got into poker. Um, I was definitely, I think it's, it's part and parcel of being younger as well. Generally, as, as you get older, you, you appreciate things aren't as simple as they might appear and you, you, you generally become a bit more nuanced, but, um, specifically poker trained me to see the world as a sort of just clouds of probability distributions and, you know, the, the, the branches of, uh, of options for the future, but also the, the the beliefs that I hold about things in the past, you know, we, we you know, especially in today's informational landscape, it's it's an absolute mess. Um, it's really hard to know what is truth truthful and what what isn't, um, you know, what is accurate and what isn't. So, um, again, being able to assign not only probabilities to events in the future, but also to explanations of things that have now you know are happening now or are in the past, is extremely useful because then also, you know, like you can. You assigning a number, be like, okay, I'm I'm 80% confident it was a zoonotic origin for COVID, or or 80% it's a lab leak. Now you're not you're not you're, you're you're acknowledging you're saying that you think it's most likely to be X or Y, but you're not so attached to it that you identify with it. Mm. You're not saying, oh, I am someone who you're not saying I am someone who believes in in the zoonotic origin or the lab leak. You're saying I am someone who thinks there's most likely to be the case. Like if I was to bet money on this, I would put most of it on that side. Yeah. And that then gives it, it just a, it makes it easier to change your mind when new evidence comes to light. Um, and B it, it helps, uh, it, it helps you actually just be, it just, it gives this an extra layer of granularity than this simple, you know, yes, no, either or black and white thinking. Do you think that our, desire to have curated social media presence um, where people follow us for certain views that we hold kind of locks us into denying those probabilities. Like as you were speaking there, it got me thinking that if somebody's part of a certain tribe and they've acquired a certain amount of followers because they identify as that tribe, even if they think there's a 20% chance that it's zoonotic and not from a lab, they'll uh, they'll go with the lab leak if their community wants it to be a lab leak or, you know, vice versa, where it's like, it doesn't really matter what I think or what the probabilities come out to as long as I appease my online persona mm -hmm. and tribe. Well, I mean, there's, there's definitely a pressure, you know, there yeah. is, there is an incentive on people to, you know, to satisfy what their follower base currently thinks. That's why it's important to cultivate a, to, to build a culture uh, in your follower base and in your own behaviors of being someone who isn't, isn't necessarily predictable in what they're going to think and say about a certain thing. And that is quite, you know, they're, they're someone who will go, oh, I did believe this, but actually now I've changed my mind. And now I think it's that, and these are the reasons. Um, and then even change back again, if, if they feel like they need to. Um, I, you know, my, with my experience with my, my follower base, I was, you know, and I started by, you know, being overtly political, I guess, uh, you know, around the time that Trump got in, 
uh, into power. I, you know, I was very upset about it. And, and I would say I got a lot of followers who were sort of if, of that same mindset. Um, as my political, uh, just, just as information has changed, and I'd say my political beliefs have evolved over time and just become a bit more complex. You know, I would say I'm less firmly in any one particular tribe than I used to be because I can see the errors of all of them. <laughs> um, no one's doing everything exactly right and realizing it's a little bit more than this one dimensional, you know, right left spectrum. Um, that's definitely, you know, when I then tweet something that isn't conventionally, you know, an anti-Trumper would say, mm-hmm. it's there, you know, I would get quite a bit of hate for it, but over time, but, but, but I didn't, I never apologized for something where they're like, I can't believe you're saying that. So what do you, you're saying Trump was right on this? Yeah, he's right on some things. Yeah, I agree with this particular point, for example. Um, And because I've never apologized and sort of not stuck to my guns, but like just, no, you know, been honest, be like, no, this is what I, these are my reasons. Then my, my follower base by and large has cultivated to being people who are just you know, I don't like to say the term radically centrist because centrist applies you in the middle and everything, and that's not yeah. the case. But just you know, complex, complex thinkers basically appreciating the complex of our enormous uh, geopolitical issues that the world is facing. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we mentioned before going on air that, that I think that's how I found you, and actually, I think that's what attracted to me to you originally was like, okay, here's somebody who's a courageous thinker who's just being honest on, on with their perspective on the world right now. And that's a like pretty rare thing, unfortunately, it seems like these days. Um, what do you think gives you that resilience or that courage? Is it because you're just used to like, I'm going to play a hand of cards for a few million dollars or euros. And <gasps> so I'm used to taking risk or <laughs> do you just not care? Cause you. Uh, no, I definitely care what people think about me. I can't say, I mean, I've become again, thicker skinned over time, but I wouldn't put myself in the category of someone, you know, who just truly doesn't care what others think. You know, there, there, there are thought leaders like that, who I do respect, like their mm-hmm. ability to be like that, you know, like Robin Hanson or Tyler Cowen, someone like that. They just, they just say what they think and they don't really care how it's necessarily perceived. I'm not like that. Um, but yeah, probably some poker has given me a thick skin, but it's it's a different kind of resilience that you need. Um, what I would say has sort of inoculated me is that I've been, I've intentionally curated and surrounded myself, my, built a network of people who I would consider to be deeply original thinkers mm. um, and people who have been canceled um, or just, you know, like, some of my closest friends are people who are kind of loosely affiliated to the intellectual dark web. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen them be put through the ringer so badly and they're like, look, I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still doing, I'm still going to fight the good fight. You can too. And so I've deliberately curated my feed of, of people who try to stand up for what they think is right in the face of an online mob. Uh, sometimes they're wrong but that's okay. And, you know, and I don't always agree with them. Certainly not. Um, I have to be careful not to follow too many of those people because then I'm going to become in that own little echo chamber of being the ones who will always stand up. Um, and I mean, and I think partly, I hate to use the word, but partly it comes to, I do have a position of privilege and that I, I feel like I have a very strong network that if it all goes wrong, I can fall back on to like, someone will probably hire me for something. <laughs> so uh, I think it, it's a little bit of just ensuring that my my income is largely independent to, um, you know, being cancelled per se. Aside from uh, the, the game theory and the thinking and probabilities that kind of ties into that, um, are there other mental frameworks that you use to navigate reality? Like, do you tell yourself stories? Like I use some quotes myself uh, when somebody excludes you, draw a bigger circle to include them. Um, or monkeys guessing at the cosmos. That's another phrase that I say to myself. Um, Robert Anton Wilson gave me perpetual agnosticism, uh, you know, always, which is my way of just saying, like, I don't know in all moments. Do you have mm-hmm. any, like, frameworks or things like that that kind of help guide you through things? Like little little aphorisms or stuff? Um, yeah. I have one of my favorite phrases I ever read uh, is written by this guy, Forrest Landry. And um, he wrote this book, oh, man, what was it called? Uh, 
oh, an, an imminent metaphysics, um, I believe. I might be mis misremembering the name of it. But anyway, it had this little statement in it, which was that, uh, sorry, love is that which enables choice. Mm. And I think that is so beautiful because I, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've, I've had a lot of love in my life, very loving, supportive family. I have a very, very loving and supportive partner. And what's the current, the, the thing they all have in common really is, you know, aside of always supporting me, they've encouraged me to make my own decisions and given me as much sort of giving me a platform as much as they could to then feel free to go out and try and make mistakes. Um, you know, like my, my parents would always be like, what, what, what would you, you know, they gave me a choice of what to do, how to go and navigate the world. And, and um, they tried to minimize the rules that they gave. And, and, and that, that really is love because it's really hard to, it's, it's very tempting if you're in a relationship with someone to, you know, because, because out of love, like worrying for them, like, no, well, don't do this and don't do that. But actually true love is, is giving them, you know, giving them and not, you know, protecting them as much as you can, but through empowering them to make their own decisions. Um, so yeah, I just, I've just always loved that. And I, and I use it as a, as a way sometimes, like if I look at friends who are in relationships and they're like, oh, I don't know if this is working out. Mm. I often put it against that benchmark. I'm like, well, are you, are you gaining or losing choice out of this relationship? I also like to put things into like game theory terms. It's like, is your, you know, is your relationship a positive sum game, a zero sum or a negative sum? Um, I mean, zero sum basically doesn't really exist in reality because there's always some kind of externalities. Um, but you know, are, are, when the two of you are together, are you, does the sum, you know, is a, is a total or greater than the parts or is it less? And it's, you can usually tell quite, quite, quite quickly, um, which it is. So yeah, that's, that's another sort of lens I've been looking things through. Like, is this, is this a positive sum or a negative sum uh, interaction? That's actually what my, my next series of videos are going to be on. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of being inside your head and watching you psychoanalyze people through game theory. <laughs> So it's slightly deranged sometimes. They're like, um, and it's it's it's. I have to be careful not to like overfit it as a as a sort of. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's an ethical model, whatever the hell kind of model it is. Um, sure. I, I find I, I'm thinking about it a little too much sometimes, but it's it's definitely a fun lens to to put on now and then. I was gonna say a useful lens to be sure. I I look through the lens of neuroscience a lot, in the way maybe you look through the lens of game theory. And when I mm -hmm. look through that lens, I always just think about amygdala activation and yep. the fight or flight. And my thought is if we have people who are scared, if we have people who don't feel safe um, because maybe they don't have like the love and support like you were talking about, then that choice, the degrees of freedom and the options you have really start to limit because you're no longer using that part of your brain that's doing complex storytelling and problem solving. And you're really reduced to this, like I just have to survive. And maybe that means aligning myself with this tribe or following this meme because it's really simple and my brain can't handle complex right now anyway. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really a question, but just a, something I guess that I was thinking about as you were talking about that quote that I think is really relevant to our relationship with technology. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. Like people, so much of their behaviors, particularly in this like current cancel climate, uh, cancel culture climate, you know, people, it's, it is devastating to have, a, a, you know, not only an online mob come upon attack you, but then for your possibly losing your job to face on top of that. And when humans aren't designed for that level of ostracization, that, that level of, um, you know, the reason we have a flight or fight response is because it, it stems from if you get kicked out of your social group, you used to die. You know, your tribe, you just, everyone depended upon the tribe for survival um because it wasn't easy being a hunter-gatherer and that that the, you know those those instincts are hardwired in us and so you feel like you're getting kicked out of tribe whether it's online or wherever um especially if you don't have then a sort of loving support network in the real world to fall back on it's devastating for people so it's no wonder that people are like starting to self-censor um and i still catch myself doing it you know i don't tweet I mean, it's a good thing to not tweet everything that's on your mind. I think that's part and parcel of the problem. People, it's like, yeah, perhaps excessively open. Um, but 
uh, at the same time, like there are certain hot topics where I'm like, okay, it's too, it's too soon to actually give my real thoughts on this of what I think is causing this problem because everyone's still emotionally up in arms. And it's like, do I, do I want to have 50,000 knives pointing at me yeah. through Twitter? I usually have that moment. I'm like, do I really want to open this wound up? Like, <laughs> I know that if I post this, I'm going to have to come back and like talk about it. Mm -hmm. And this is going to take <sighs> up a lot of my time. Yeah. Is it worth it? Usually it's yeah. not. <laughs> the eternal dilemma. <laughs> yeah, the Twitter eternal dilemma. Um, I saw that you recently did a discussion with um, a group. I can't remember. I think it was on Discord called Homo Techno. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Are you open to sharing a little bit about what you discussed in that? Sure. Well, so that was uh, with Grimes, um, or C, as I know her. Um, she just, uh, she asked me if I would uh, come and join her on it because she was meant to be doing this like live discussion session um, with with the Discord crew. Um, but on that, we announced that we're going to be starting a podcast together called Homo Techno. Um, very excited about it. Uh, I mean, she's been a she's been a good friend for a couple of years, and we've been musing on musing on doing one. Um, and uh, the the name comes from uh, obviously Homo sapiens. But are we, have we evolved into a new, into sort of a, new, a new, have we upgraded or evolved? Some people might think it's a downgrade uh, into homo techno uh, as the next, as the next step. Um, so it's going to be loosely around technology and future, futurism. Um, I mean, she's obviously basically something from a sci-fi novel anyway. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with, with futurism too. Uh, and um, but I think we'd also we'd like to use the platform as some as as a means to sort of open the Overton window on a number of topics. Um, you know, it, it's nice because her and I actually, you know, we disagree on on some things politically. So um, hopefully, our own dialogue will will help sort of have have constructive conversations of people from differing viewpoints because that's that's really all we can do. And again, like that's why podcasts are such a great medium because they are a long form opportunity to, to talk about something nuanced. Um, of course, there will always be the danger that people will take little snippets out and, you know, everything can be edited to fit whatever narrative you want. And I'm sure that will happen, happen to us. But uh, um, yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. I don't know when we're going to actually, it's difficult because I'm in the UK right now. She's in the US, but uh, uh, we'll hopefully be recording some of that soon. Uh, can you describe for people who might not know what the Overton window is? And can you maybe talk about some of the topics on the podcast that you think the window might need to be expanded on if maybe conversations around AI or whether or not this is a good transformation that we're experiencing as a mm -hmm. species? Well, yeah, so that's definitely one of the main topics. Um, to explain the Overton window, basically that's uh, the term coined to basically describe the range of topics that are considered allowable discourse. So there will be certain beliefs or ideas that for whether good or bad reasons are too taboo to be discussed um, in you know, polite society or whatever you wanna call it. But there are certain things that people will not discuss, certain ideas people will not float, um, uh, maybe because they actually are just bad ideas or maybe because people for whatever reason aren't able to listen to them in a rational way. Um, and in my opinion, particularly online, uh, it's good to keep, there, there, there are forces at play that are trying to close the Overton window more and more and more. And generally speaking, like a, an authoritarian re regime will have a very narrow Overton window of what can and can't be discussed. Like there's a lot of things you can't say in North Korea. Um, so that would be an example of a narrow Overton window. Whereas technically the US is meant to be a place of free speech. So in theory, that's a very wide Overton window. Um, so that doesn't mean to say that are things that everything is worth discussing, having a wide open window. It just means that if there are good reasons, then you should be able to discuss things. Um, and, and you should, should be able to float ideas without um, being fearful for your job or your, or your social group or your life in some cases. Um, so yeah, that's, that's you know, I, I'm, I'm getting increasingly concerned about the the concentration of power in terms of the ability to censor ideas and conversations online. Um, you know, I appreciate, you know, the job of someone 
running YouTube or Twitter or wherever is, is an awful job. I would, I would never want to do it because you're like battling these pressures between controlling, you know, preventing clear misinformation from being spread that could damage people, but also making sure that you're not shutting out good information. Um, but I personally think in, in terms of where, in which direction they, they're going too heavily, they're going far too heavily in the, in, in, in the narrowing of what's acceptable discourse. And particularly when we're trying to solve such complex issues right now, like, um, uh, you know, like COVID, uh, the fact that we're letting the WHO and a couple of other uh, centralized, centralized health organizations dictate literally what treatments can and cannot be discussed in any way, like this whole ivermectin debacle. Mm -hmm. I don't know if ivermectin actually works. I'm not saying it does. I don't, I don't know. I think that, you know, there isn't enough evidence to draw a conclusion either way. Um, that's why they need to do more RCTs. But the fact that YouTube, like if you mention ivermectin, it's like mentioning Voldemort yeah. and you will get like struck with a ban hammer um, or have your video taken down. And I was like, that's what's been happening to Brett Weinstein. Um, that's deeply worrying because we need information to be able to flow so that we can hive minds our way out of this problem. Especially um, if it's coming from scientists, you would think that we'd yeah, be more open you, to it. You think you, maybe if it's a, like a biology PhD and a literal ICU doctor, which is this particular video that got taken down, well, you know, discussing COVID, you know, the ICU doctors discussing his experiences treating COVID patients and like the best practice protocols. You'd think that that would be that would pass through the, the filter yeah. as, 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 as something suitable. It's not like some crazy person wearing a tinfoil hat screaming into the, into the, uh, into the abyss. So yeah, I, 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 if I, not that I doubt any technology, so social media platforms are listening to this, but my advice to them would be like, I appreciate you're in a, in a, in a tough situation, but you no one person has enough knowledge to be able to determine what isn't what isn't good information right now no one does and yeah. um if you think you do you are gro grossly mistaken um and if you think it's okay because you're getting your orders on high from like centralized health institutions have a look and see how well they've handled this pandemic and then question maybe maybe whether they are a little bit stretched thin and overwhelmed themselves and that's not either the best the best judges on this yeah I worry about how the algorithms are are playing with outrage or academia. It's like favoring outrage over academia, for instance. It just yes. seems really ironic. Well, yeah, it's kind of that race to the bottom type uh, dynamics again, you know, right? Like outrage is a strong, engages the limbic system or the amygdala. And we're more likely to interact with the post when our uh, amygdala is firing. So you know, anything that's incredibly exciting or incredibly outrage, you know, outrageous or upsetting is going to get more clicks than something that's probably more likely correct and complex. Um, so that's the other, that's the other thing. And, and it's sad to see that um, academia uh, is difficult because I think in some ways we are overly dependent uh, on what's considered sort of Oh, this person is an expert and therefore we can only listen to them in some ways we do that too heavily but then in other ways we're um democratizing not, not uh democratizing oh no democratizing is the word we're, <laughs> we're we're discounting it um it's, it's a really f fine balance to strike um and there's certainly no one size fits all answer yeah on the podcast that you're looking to start what are some of the topics that you're most interested in exploring in terms of maybe the the evolution or transformation of the human animal into something technological? Um, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about it without sort of, I don't know, see, you know, C and I are working on this together. So sure. I, 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 I don't want to go too, too far out on a limb, but I, I would personally love to delve into like transhumanism in general. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure Steve will be interested in that one too. Um, you know, like, uh, how do we coexist a lot, you know, assuming we manage to build AGI, um, yeah. how will that, what would that, what would a utopian landscape yeah. look like with a, with a, with a, with a, an AGI and what would a dystopian one look like? How do we make sure it's more like this one? You know, like there's so much effort, there's so much, there's been so much art created about dystopias and so little created about 
utopias and we need more art thinking about that because you know we sure we we, we should be paying attention to the sticks driving us away from okay we definitely don't want that but we need some carrots too mm. um which is the most exciting thing about agi for example um it, it really it is possibly our only way out of this mess um yeah agreed. so it's it, it's we, we we need to be putting at least as much brain power into creating visions of, of utopia, you know, of paradise as we do into depicting dystopia. Do you like the idea of brain computer interfaces? Do you like the, like, let's get specific on technology. Do you, mm. as we move forward, do you want to see things move to like basic income or resource-based economies, brain computer interfaces? What are some of the most promising technological shifts? I should preface this with this is not my area of expertise. I haven't like studied extensively into like what the perfect uh, economic political system should be. My guess is that it, we will need some kind of UBI. It, it just seems invariable. It's in, in incredibly unlikely that we won't need something like that. Um, uh, ideally, we would have some kind of technologically induced abundance, closed loop economy uh system with a large social safety net um but that still allows for the right just whatever the right ingredient of competition is you know like the right it'll be some kind of amalgamation of the best bits of capitalism the best bits of socialism the best bits of something else that we haven't thought of yet um uh and the best part you know utilizing technology to help us develop that um that it's basically like a higher order of complexity than what we've currently got. I mean, the trouble is, and this is partially what's going to be going into my, my new series of videos, is that competition as a sort of driving force has been incredibly powerful and 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 by and large been actually very good. Like um, the you know the 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 competition aspect of capitalism is what's created so many of the great things that we have and improved our quality of our life. But we, we need to, there's a point where competition becomes a little too powerful, where like this, you know, zero sum interactions, if you can't contain any, if you don't manage to contain the externalities will become negative sum overall. And I, I fear that we're heading towards that if we're not already there. So we need to have, we need to have some kind of more evolved system that, that, lessens the power of competition or just i mean it keeps competition in a box so that it doesn't get too out of control because you know we're ultimately on a finite playing field and uh you can't play win lose too long because then you'll break the break the board i was gonna say prevents the the changing of the playing field right my concern i guess with competition is that the people who win get more power to change the game so it it no longer becomes you know fair competition right for the masses yeah the, fee the feedback loops become yeah there's too much uh sort of self self-propagation mm -hmm. in terms of uh a sort of competitive advantage yeah so uh i don't have a yeah i don't have a concise answer to that um i'm kind of lost in the the metaphysical realm right yeah. now between the interplay of cooperation and competition as though they were entities uh Largely inspired by uh, Scott Alexander's meditation on Moloch, meditations on Moloch. Yeah. If, if I imagine a, a large portion of your reader base will have read it, anyone who hasn't should. It's incredible. Um, that's what I want to try and video. I was going to say I'll add it in the show of. notes to try to yeah. make sure we can put people along. <laughs> well, for you personally, like I guess what I was one thing I was getting at: Would you do it? Would you personally sign up for like a brain computer interface or a brain oh. upload or like in terms of transhumanism? Um, are you excited oh, about it or no? Oh, I mean, of course, you know, <laughs> I, I would love the option to be a digital girl for a little while and be a biological girl for a little while. I would like to try them both out, but I would like to maintain optionality to switch between the two. So um, I, I think, I don't think I would like it to be just the case that we would move to a purely digital space that we all exist in, but maybe we're in one anyway. Um, yeah, I, I would. I will. I be the first person to sign up for the the brain the brain computer interface. Definitely not. Um, but will I be in the first ten percent of humanity? I hope so. Uh, I think it's really exciting. Um, I think it might be the most elegant solution to some of the risks posed by um, 
you know emerging technologies uh particularly particularly agi um so yeah i'm i'm, I'm pretty gung-ho on it i think it's uh it's definitely an area that i'm it's one of the areas i'm most excited about yeah yeah how cool would it be to sort of be able to just play around in digital simulations that exists purely in a in cyberspace I mean, i'm 100 for it anything more fun <laughs> yeah I, I i think it's fantastic um i've not met anyone who's against it but maybe my my mm. social circles are too i was too gonna narrow. say i think you have very specific social circles <laughs> I I feel like I should meet I shouldn't meet a lot of people who are like that, but uh, Portland is pretty like far left and pretty hippie and down to earth. And as much as yeah. I came here for my love of some of those things, it's a community that definitely has what we like to call in the community the skin bag bias. So you know, <laughs> it's not super yeah. fun. Yeah, I mean, I do like I do like being a skin bag, though. That's the thing. But maybe that's my status quo bias speaking. Maybe, you know, the, it's just because I haven't sampled the delights of the digital realm uh, enough. But I don't know. I, I, I'm still at my core. Like, I grew up in nature. I grew up, like, riding horses, living in the dirt uh, mm. with animals. And I gain so much happiness out of just being in, in the wilderness. Um, I think... I don't know. I, I feel I do feel a deep affinity with the with the nature hippies. I still like if I am I more one of them than I am a technologist. I don't know. I don't know yeah. honestly. Um, and I think by and large, most people are a combination of the two. So we have to find you know find that symbiosis. Like you said, nuance is sexy. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about the technology coming down the line in terms of AI? I, I know that you have done some. Uh, I think you've spoken a bit about warning people of AI and what you're concerned with. Um, is there mm -hmm. particular aspects of it that you are concerned about? Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the main thing is that be careful what you wish for, you know, um, by definition, if we, if we manage to build a super intelligence, then that is now going to be the dominant, the dominant force, well, you know, however it may look, however it manifests, I don't know. But for the same reason that we can't, you know, we, even though we're physically weaker than chimpanzees, we can ultimately control them and determine what their habitat and lifestyle is like if we want to. Uh, we're much more intelligent than them. And so a super intelligent will have the same super intelligence will be able to control us. Um, uh, and anyone who thinks that you can just unplug it and 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 we'll, you'll be fine is delusional because they, then they're just not thinking about what what it means to be super intelligent um that said like i i my intuition sort of says to me that by definition if something is super intelligent it will be a nuanced complex thinker and won't necessarily be like oh yes i'm going to turn the, these humans their atoms into just more of the thing that i like um, it would, I just can't see it doing that unless it had a really, really, really good reason, in which case it's probably a reason that we would, I don't know, it, it, you know, kind of like the utility monster or whatever. It, it's uh, the idea that there's something that just will gain so much more value out yeah. of uh, something than, than we could even perceive and thus we should always let it do it. Um, I don't know, it, it, it just seems somewhat implausible to me that an AI would be so short-sighted to just turn the universe into paperclips. Mm -hmm. um you know but that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't proceed with caution because that we don't know for certain that that's not the case and in the cases where that does happen that's so bad and so sad what a, what a sad end of the universe to just like be the the result of just some like poorly defined uh optimization process to build this one particular thing you know like uh better served Instagram videos that just happens to be super intelligent, like just tiles the universe with dancing cats and teenagers. Oh, um, it's already happened. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, don't get me started. I have deep fears about just TikTok and, and those types of highly, highly lowbrow, highly viral, deeply entertaining content to young people. It's uh, yeah shaping but maybe, maybe that's just not shaping a generation for the best future yeah but then again that's what my parents said about me and my obsession with heavy metals so maybe it's just that happening again look where you are now oh, exactly. 
I, uh, I want to respect your time. I know we probably said it more for an hour and I don't want to run over here. Um, but I want to give you a chance to share anything that you're working on that you'd like to direct people to maybe some of these new videos, or if you can talk about the podcast yet, anything at all. Yeah. Um, can't, I don't have any, in terms of the podcast, we don't have a, a, you know, even a social media account or anything yet. Um, so, uh, the main thing, if, if, come if, if you don't follow me already please follow me on twitter because i do say i say a lot of weird stuff but I, some of some of them are some of the some of the tweets are actually valuable and interesting i think um and follow me on youtube i'm horrible at following any any kind of posting schedule uh it, the, the gaps between videos gets longer and longer but yeah my new series of videos um i hope will be the right mix of educational and entertaining and it's on a topic that I think is really important, which is how we deal with this, this concept of Moloch and, you know, like negative sum, uh, excessively rivalous competition and, and these, bad, these bad systems that the sort of civilization gets stuck in. Um, so kind of a mixture between the writings of Eliezer Yudkowsky and uh, Scott, Scott Alexander. Um, so yeah, come check me out on there. Perfect. All right. We'll send everybody your way. Liv, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time and chatting with me. Thank you so much. This was, this was awesome. It's, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be invited on, on this kind of podcast. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure to meet you. And now we're going to take a moment for a short message about our membership for organizations, which you can find by going to su.org and clicking organizations in the menu. Singularity Group was founded upon the belief that the world's biggest problems represent the world's biggest opportunities. Our mission remains unchanged, but our methods have evolved exponentially. Today, we're opening doors around the world as a digital-first organization. We invite future-thinking companies to join Singularity Group to learn about the breadth of exponential technologies, to empower your organization with an abundance mindset, and to grow networks that can create solutions to humanity's greatest challenges. With an unprecedented year behind us and many great challenges ahead, leaders across the globe are wrestling with the future, how to embrace change, stay ahead of trends, and build sustainable businesses. We help entrepreneurial leaders better understand how exponential technologies can be applied in their companies to advance their goals for people, planet, profit, and purpose. And it all starts with the mindset, the skill set, and the network. Together, let's discuss how membership can turn you and your leaders into exponential thinkers and prepare for an abundant future for all. Together, we can impact a billion people.